Peace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time with us, welcome, and welcome to my constant listeners as well. I uh, appreciate you all tuning in and listening each week um, and learning about new words. This is definitely a time capsule into history. Now, if this is your first time with us, you may be wondering what the Encyclopedia Challenge is, and that, that's a good thing to wonder. Um, the good news is, is you don't need to own any encyclopedias. You don't have to read along. I mean, you can if you want to. That's that's no big deal. That's actually pretty cool. That's, uh, that's exactly what I would encourage. Um, and I would hope that these words prompt you to do some research and dig in a little deeper and find out a little bit more about some of these things. Now, uh, if you don't have time for that, because you know who has time for that other than me, apparently, <laughs> um, then I can do a bonus. So if it's something that sparked your curiosity or you want to know more about it or, or you think maybe the encyclopedia didn't tell the whole story or got a little bit wrong, which sometimes happens, it does happen, uh, let me know. Uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com select contact and let me know what you would like me to do a bonus on. Um, or you can write to me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com. So either one of those is fine. Um, and I do enjoy doing bonuses. In fact, if you remember the Thanksgiving bonus, um, I said I wasn't going to do, I wasn't planning on doing a Thanksgiving or Christmas bonus. And then I woke up on Thanksgiving morning and I was like, oh, I want to do a Thanksgiving bonus. Well, I decided I want to do a Christmas bonus. And guess what? There are just 20 days until Christmas. That's right. Today is December 5th, 2021. You have 20 days until Christmas. I am so excited. Um, I hope you are too. I, I just, I love Christmas. Um, Halloween is my all-time favorite still. But I'm starting to like Christmas a little more than probably Halloween, and I'll explain why a little later. Because um, I do have a little story to share with you. Now, um, I also wanted to mention, if you had trouble opening the Thanksgiving bonus via the website, theoaktreejourneys.com, that has been corrected. Um, if you still have trouble, please let me know. Um, some of the links are, uh, came up as broken, um, so I probably did something really weird. So, you know, hopefully we've got that fixed. But if a link doesn't work, please, by all means, let me know. And, uh, oh, we've got a new quote of the month. This is December, so happy December. So not only is it Christmas time, but it's also a new, brand new month. So we do have a new quote of the month, and this is by Carlisle. And uh, I wanted something kind of about cheerfulness and cheeriness uh, so I looked up in my really cool quotations book, um, and if you're curious as to what that is, it's called the New Dictionary of Thoughts, a cyclopedia of quotations from the best authors of the world, both ancient and modern, alphabetically arranged by subjects. Originally compiled by Tryon Edwards D.D., revised and enlarged by C.N. Catrivas A.B., Jonathan Edwards A.M., and Ralph Emerson Browns A.M., and it's from 1966, published by Standard Book Company. So that is where I found the quote. 
So the quote of the month is, Wondrous is the strength of cheerfulness and its power of endurance. The cheerful man will do more in the same time, will do it better, will preserve it longer than the sad or sullen. Or I'm sorry, will persevere in it longer than the sad or sullen. Okay, and so that is our quote of the month. So I'm very excited about that. And last week, now I know the, the whole reason you're here is to listen to words. Now, we only have 30 words today. Uh, and last week we ended with Alcott, comma, May, or May Alcott. So the reason why we only have 30 words is because as I was going back through and listening uh, to some of these podcasts, I realized, oh, I'm creeping up to the three-hour mark here. We've got two and a half hours. We've got two hours. So I was kind of slowly creeping up. To three hours and I don't want to do that to you I just get so excited about words that I forget about time so uh, so I, I love doing 50 words but I'm going to try to drop it down to 30 words and see if that helps um, cut down some of the time if I get excited you know well I do get excited but uh, if I forget then I forget and I want to apologize ahead of time but I just, I get so excited about reading the encyclopedia. I know I'm a dork, but <laughs> so are you for listening. <laughs> so we're in this together, right? All right. Words I don't like to hear, but here are the first five words we are going to do. We have alcove, alcoy, alcidia, comma, manual de Godoy, duke of, alquin, comma, flaccus, albinus, and then alquan. And I hope I pronounced that right. I don't remember seeing a pronunciation key for the Alquan or Alki one. Um, but to see how these are spelled, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge. There will also be a link in the description. Uh, so feel free to look into that. Okay, our first word of today is alcove noun. And that is an architectural term denoting a recess in a chamber where one, where one may recline or where a bed or sideboard may be placed. An alcove is either hung with curtains or closed with doors during the day. It was known to the ancients and at one time very common in France when the immoderate size of the apartments rendered it absolutely necessary as a preventative against the cold during sleep. It is no longer common or fashionable, eminent physicians having declared its closeness injurious and prejudice against health. Alcove, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Alcove is applied also to the bays or open recesses for bookshelves in a library hall, also a shady recess in a garden. So there we go. That's Alcove. Our second entry is Alcoy. So Alcoy. And that is a town of Spain, province of Alcanti, a portion of the former kingdom of Valencia. It is built in a funnel of the hills on a tongue of land, land hemmed in by two streams with bridges and arched viaducts. And that's a quote. The houses hang picturesquely over the terraced gardens and ravines. The walls of Alcoy are of clay and suffered considerable damage during the last war. Remember, this is 1909. But the town contains some new edifices and has numerous manufactories. Quote, here is made the Papal de Hayo, the book Liber Libroto de Fumer, which forms the entire 
Domina Comi Library of Nine Tenths of Spaniards and with which they make their papelotos or little paper cigars, end quote. 200,000 reams are annually made, of which 10,000 are used for writing, 10,000 for packing, and 180,000 for the paper cigars. Alcoy is also famous for its sugar plums. It has a consistory, town hall, poor asylum, public granary, etc. Population in 1900 was 32,053. And I forgot to mention, for any of you new listeners out there, and as a reminder to my regular listeners, we do uh, read from two different encyclopedias. The first one is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, which I just read from uh, for the first two entries. And we're going to read the um, next two entries as well from there. And the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Okay, so let's continue on to number three, which is Alcoa comma Manuel de Godoy, Duke of or Manuel de, de Godoy Alcadia. And he was also known as the Prince of Peace. And that is pretty cool. So if he were in charge of something, that would be a good thing to be known by. We've seen, we've listened to some, uh, some pretty horrible people who were known by awful things. So I love seeing, seeing this, this type of stuff. Okay, so he lived from 1767 to 1851, born Badejos, Spain, poor but handsome and musical. At the age of 20, he entered the king's bodyguard at Madrid and soon became a favorite of the weak Charles IV as well as of the queen. Honors and emoluments flowed in rapidly. In 1801, he led the Spanish army against the Portuguese and signed the Treaty of Badajos. In 1804, he was made Generalissimo of the Spanish forces on sea and land and invested with unlimited power. The alliance of Spain with France in the war with England, which ensued in spite of the sums paid by Spain to secure neutrality, the defeat of Trafalgar, and consequent checked commerce all tended to exasperate the public mind, and a court party was formed against him, with the Prince of Austerius at its head. He now resolved to shake off the French alliance and to treat secretly with the Lisbon court, but however cautiously taken, his warlike measures reached the ears of Napoleon and determined him to carry out his project for, of dethroning the Bourbons. Meanwhile, the people had been further exasperated against the favorite by his unprincipled accusations against the Prince of Asterius, and when in 1808 Charles abdicated in favor of his son, the Duke's life was saved only by the promise of his trial. This trial, however, never took place. Napoleon, who knew his influence over the minds of their Spanish majesties, had him liberated and brought to Bayonne, where he instigated all measures taken by the ex-king and queen, retaining their favor till their death. After his fall, he lived chiefly in France. In 1808, his income had been estimated at 5 million piastres. After the Revolution of 1830, he was subsisting in Paris upon a small pension bestowed by Louis Philippe. In 1847, his return to Spain was permitted, and his titles, together with great part of his wealth, restored. He died at Paris. Okay. So he was a duke, considered the prince of peace, but the people didn't like him. It's kind of weird. Um, I wish they kind of fleshed him out a little bit more. But that's okay. So if anyone wants to learn more about him, uh, just let me know if you want me to make a bonus about him or someone else. 
uh, just let me know. Go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and let me know uh, what you would like a, a bonus to be made about. And our fourth entry is Alquin, comma, Flaccus Albinus. And this is about 735 to 804. Uh, born York, England, the most distinguished scholar of the 8th century, the confidant and advisor of Charlemagne. He was educated under the care of Archbishop Egbert and his relative, Albert, and succeeded the latter as master of the school of York. Charlemagne became acquainted with him at Parma as he was returning from Rome, whither he had gone to bring home the Liam for a friend, and in the year 782, this monarch invited him to his court and availed himself of his assistance in his endeavors to civilize his subjects. Alquin became the preceptor of Charlemagne himself, whom he instructed on in the various sciences. That's cool. To render his instructions more available, Charlemagne established at his court a school called Scoe Palantina, the superintendents of which, as well as of several monasteries, was committed to him. In the learned society of the court, Alquin went by the name of Flaccus Albinus. Most of the schools in France were either founded or improved by him. Well, that is really good. Among others, he founded the school of in the Abbey of St. Martin in Tours. That's, uh, se okay, 796. Taking as his model the school of York, and in this school he himself taught after his retirement from court in 801. While living at Tours, he frequently corresponded with Charlemagne. At his death, he left, besides numerous theological writings, a number of elementary works on philosophy, mathematics, rhetoric, and philology, also poems and a great number of letters. His letters, while they betray the uncultivated character of the age generally, Shu Alcut Alquin, sorry, Alcut <laughs> Alquin, <laughs> to have been the most accomplished man of his time. He understood Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Good editions of his works appeared in 1777 and 1873. See The Life of Alquin by Lorenz in 1829, Moniere's Alquin at Charlemagne in 1864, and Mullinger's Schools of Charles the Great in 1877. Okay. All right, and for our fifth entry, let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana, uh, and then we'll go to break. We have Alquan, uh, and then there's no pronunciation key for this, but it's pretty cool. Alquan is the brightest star of the Pleiades. So big name, small definition, but it's the brightest star of the Pleiades. All right, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next five words are Alcyonite, Alcyonium, Alda Calma Francis, Alden, and Aldbro. And before I, I get into the sixth entry, which is Alcyonite, I uh, just wanted to mention NaNoWriMo is done. It's over with. And if anyone participated in NaNoWriMo, any of my listeners, I have got one question. Did you get all 50,000 words? And did you have fun doing it? I hope you did. I hope you got all 50,000, even if you didn't. Uh, you still tried your best. And uh, you still participate. So that was really good. Um, I, I did get all 50,000 words. Um, I am a little disappointed in myself because I didn't finish my story I was working on. 
Uh, I was hoping to have it done uh, before November 30th, um, but I'm still working on it. I still got the 50,000 words, still got to print off my certificate, uh, and still had that. I'm not sure I'm going to participate next year. I know I say, I say this every year because I'm getting older, and yeah, the 50,000 words, that's a lot of words to try to get in, and I'm finding that I'm focusing more on the words um, than I am my actual story. So, I don't like doing that. Uh, whenever I first started it, I, I didn't do it that way. I, I focused on my novel. That was actually the first novel I ever wrote was because of NaNoWriMo. And I love NaNoWriMo. And I want to encourage others to, to participate. Especially if you need that extra push to finish your novel or to learn what it takes to write a novel. Um, but uh, do you, anyone who participated in NaNoWriMo, any of my listeners, did you feel that way? Do you ever feel that way that you're just focusing more on the words uh, than your actual story? Or am I alone in that? <laughs> Have I just, I feel like I've just done it so long that that's what I'm focusing on. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. But, um, but anyway, I, I do still want to encourage everyone to do NaNoWriMo uh, if you enjoy that. Um, it just, I think my focus is a little off. Um, so I wrote myself a note, to, a reminder not to participate next year. Um, unless I just change my mind and just do it anyway. But, uh, but yeah, I think I said that last year too. I, I think I recognized it either last year or the year before. And I still do it because I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, the community of NaNoWriMo. I enjoy the encouraging emails of NaNoWriMo. I enjoy the perks at the end, whenever you get the 50000 I'll, I'll admit it, I enjoy the perks and the, and the merchandise, too. So, speaking of merchandise, I do have a Teespring store. Um, unfortunately, the 15% has ended. So, if you didn't get to utilize that, I'm sorry. Um, I will run another special later. Um, but right now, uh, there is no more percent off. Uh, the 15% off expired on December 1st. Uh, but the link to my Teespring store is in the description below. And uh, so just a, just a heads up on that. <laughs> Alright, so without further ado, let's go ahead and go to number six. And that's alcyanite, which is a noun. And that is a term applied to the spongy form fossils common in the chalk formation. Alcyanaria, noun, plural, a division of the Calenterata comprising the sea pens, red corals, fan corals, etc. Okay, our sixth entry, and we are in the the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Uh, For four of these, then for two, we'll we'll be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and I'll let you know when we switch over. But right now we're in the 1909. Okay, our seventh entry is... Alcyonium, which is a genus of Calenterata, the type of an order called Alcinaria, belonging to the class Actinozoa, see zoology, and consisting of a polyp mass with star-like pores and protrusive polyps. It is extremely common on the British shores, on stones, old shells, etc., in deep water. It sometimes appears as a mere crust about the about the eighth of an inch in thickness, but commonly rises up in rounded cones and often assumes forms which have procured for it the popular name of dead man's fingers. Ooh, 
and other similar appellations. The pulp mass is gelatinous within and covered with a sort of leathery skin, the mass being traversed by a multitude of minute canals, terminating on the outer surface in star-like figures, which, if the whole be placed in seawater, are seen to project considerably from the surface and appear as polyps with eight tentacola or feelers. So that what seems to be a dis disgusting fleshy mass in the fisherman's net proves to be, when placed in its proper element, a structure of surprising beauty and full of animal life, existing under peculiar and wonderful conditions. The manner in which the polyps protrude and retract themselves has been likened to that in which the horns of a snail are protruded and retracted. Their tentacola are short, obtuse, and elegantly fringed at the margins. The external part of the body of the polyp is a membrane so transparent that by the employment of a magnifying glass, the whole internal structure can be seen through it. That's cool. This delicate membrane, however, is composed of two very thin membranes, intimately united, the outer of which increases in thickness at the base of the polyp, coalesces with that of adjacent polyps and is continuous with the common leathery skin of the polyp mass. The inner membrane retains its extreme delicacy throughout. It extends into and lines the cell of the polyp and the tube or canal which proceeds from the cell into the mass and is thus also continuous with the corresponding membranes of other polyps. For the canals divided into branches in their course from the base of the pulp mass to the surface and the intimacy of union in the whole is increased by a fine tubular network which occupies the spaces between the principal canals. If a portion of it is irritated, not only the particularly polyps, particular polyps immediately subjected to irritation retract themselves as to withdraw from danger, but the gradual collapse and con contraction of the whole polyp mass shows the irritation has been felt through it all. The contraction of the mass is owing to a discharge of water, which the polyps which protruded imbibe, and which circulates through and distends the pull-up activity, it has, oh, I'm sorry, and it distends the pull-up mass so that when the pull-ups are undisturbed and in full activity, it's twice or three times the size which it has, as we find it, cast out upon the beach. The stomach of each pull-up is centrical, as may be seen in figure, okay, figure three, um, which there's a really crude drawing I'm not even going to try to describe it. You can look it up online if you want to. Okay, and beneath it is comparatively large cavity into which hang loosely eight twisted filaments or threads, the use of which is not well ascertained and has been the subject of very different opinions among naturalists. And the gelatinous substance of the pull-up mass, which fills the interstices of the tubular network, numerous crystalline calcareous spicula lie immersed like the raphides found in the intercellular passages of some plants. They are toothed on the sides, but are of various forms and have no organic connection with any part of the animal structure, their only use apparently being to impart some degree of strength to the whole. These specula are of general occurrence in zoophytes of this order and are secreted, oh, secreted by the common skin of the pulp mass. The pulp mass increases by gemma or buds which grow into new branches but the propagation of the species takes place by ova or eggs, which first appear as minute smooth warts on the membrane of the canals in the interior. 
The constriction of the neck by which they grow separates them from the parent membrane, and they move through the canal by means of very minute vibrating cilia or hairs with which they are furnished until they reach the stomach of the polyp into which they enter and through which they slowly proceed till at last they are ejected by the mouth, the only opening, and committed to the waves and tides. The obus seem capable of feeling while within the parent mass. That is really neat. And may be observed to move backwards and forwards and to contract their sides as if by voluntarily action in their passage through the body of the polyp. These wonderful phenomena of nature are the more easily observed because the ova are of a deep vermilion color, beautifully contrasting with the pure white of the polyp, through the tunic of which they are seen. One of the most remarkable known species, and the largest is called Apicolum, or Neptune's cup, which was discovered by Sir Stamford Raffles upon the coral reefs of Sumatra and is found in the neighborhood of Singapore. It grows erect, sometimes attaining nearly three feet in height and 18 inches in diameter. Specimens are now frequent in museums in this country. The name Alcyonum was formerly also given to many zoophytes, now found to be a very different structure, some of which now bear the name Alcyonidium, others that of Alcinella. The name zoophytes, now generally obsolete, was given to various plant-like animals, mostly the Salentitrata. The most common British species is Alcinidium gelatinosum. It resembles a sponge in appearance, but is more pellicid and gelatinous, and is full of polyps, each having 15 or 16 long, slender tentacula. It is attached to old shells and stones, and is sometimes much lobed, as in the proceed okay, preceding figure which again is just a crude drawing. Uh, sometimes almost simple. The color varies from a very pale brown to clear yellow. The surface is speckled with minute dots from which when it is placed in seawater, the polyps protrude. The polyp differs widely from that of Alcineum in having an intestine which proceeding from the stomach to the aperture of the cell opens thereby an orifice distinct from the mouth, a difference characteristic of the classes to which they respectively belong. The ova are clothed with cilia, and their motions either are or most strikingly resemble voluntary motions. Alcinella belongs to the molluscoid polyzoa, or bryozoa, see zoophytes. There is one British species, Alcinella stagnorum, found in the stagnant waters, especially in autumn, in shapeless, jelly-like masses, of a blackish-green color, usually adhering to the leaves of aquatic plants. The jelly-like mass is traversed from base to surface by multitudes of tubes, which open by a roundish or five-angled aperture. The heads of the polyps project a little way from the aperture and expand into a circle of about 50 tentacula. About 1,600 polyps are sit situated on a square inch of the surface of the mass. Wow, that's a lot. The number of Tentacola, on a specimen of moderate size, has been computed at more than 5 million. 5 million, yeah. The tentacola are covered with minute cilia, only to be observed with a high magnifying power, by means of which a constant whirlpool is maintained, centering in the mouth of the polyp, and essential probably for breathing as well as for the supply of food. 
Each polyp is organically connected with the mass, its tunic being continuous with the tube. The alimentary canal has two openings. The ova are to be found in the vast numbers in the tubes which traverse the mass. They are dark brown whilst the tubes are colorless or tinted with green of a lens-like form and destitute of cilia. They are produced from all parts of the inner side of the gelatinous tubes, and as there seems to be no aperture for their escape, it is supposed that they are liberated from the parent mass only on its death and decomposition. The alcinella is an interesting object in a freshwater aquarium, but is rather difficult to preserve. It is not, however, always to be found even in ponds where it might be expected and is abundant in particular seasons and rare in others. The ova are probably capable of remaining long dormant until some occurrence of circumstances favors the development of the germ of life which they contain. In the above account of polyzoa, zoa, polypide is the word preferred by recent authors who confide, confined polyp to salinterata. Okay, that is that was long, but that was really interesting. Okay, and let's move along to entry number eight, Alda, comma, Francis, and that is where we turn to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So Alda, comma, Francis, or Francis Alda, original name Francis Davis, American operatic opera soprano, born Christchurch, New Zealand, May 31st, 1883. She okay, she studied under Blanche Marchesi in Paris and made her debut at the Opera Comique in 1904 in the role of Manon. After four years of operatic successes abroad, she joined the Metropolitan Opera where she was a member until her retirement in 1929. She published her memoirs, Men, Women, and Tenors, Boston, 1937. So I'm assuming she was still alive when this 1956 Encyclopedia Americana was written. Um, I didn't see. She retired in 1929, so she may have still been alive. There's no date of death there. So that's pretty cool. Okay, and number nine is Alden, and we're going to stay in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for entry number nine, Alden, which is at Borough, Pennsylvania, is located in Delaware County, two miles north of the Delaware River, and seven and a half miles west of Philadelphia, at an altitude of 120 feet. It was incorporated in 1893 as a residential community on modern highways and is served by the Westchester branch of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Population in 1940 was 2,642, and in 1950, 3,430. Okay, and let's go back to the New Imperial and Dictionary of 1909 for our 10th entry before break. And our 10th entry is Aldborough, and that is, it says, uh, Decay Town of the West Riding of Yorkshire on the River and on Watling Street before 1832 sent two members to Parliament. Extensive remains of the Roman town of Assyrium have been found here. There is another small coast town of the same name in the northeast of Suffolk. And with that, let's go to break. And 
and welcome back to Season 1, Episode 42. Our next five words are Aldebaran, Aldegrieber, Heinrich, Aldehyde, Aldehyde, and Aldehydes. <laughs> so I like all the Aldehydes there. So uh, before we can, uh, begin uh, on number 11, I just want to remind everyone, on December 24th, the Christmas bonus um, will be uploaded. So that is the goal date, December 24th, so Christmas Eve, and that's the Christmas bonus. And uh, if you recall, I just said uh, a few minutes ago that I wasn't originally going to do a Christmas bonus. Um, at least that's what I thought last month, but I changed my mind. And I'm not sure which book I'm going to read this time. I've got three uh, that I really, really want to read. Um, so I I'm going to narrow it down. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all three. Um, but uh, yeah, I've got three stories I want to read from. So I've, I've just got to pick one and work on that. And uh, December 24th is the goal date for the bonus. So I'm very, very excited. I hope you are too. And if you uh, want to listen to any of my previous bonuses, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select bonuses. Um, the link is also in the description of this podcast. And uh, just listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. And let's go ahead and continue to number 11. So entry number 11 is Aldebaran. And that is from the encyclopedia, the new imperial encyclopedia. Hold on. The new imperial encyclopedia and dictionary of 1909. Sorry, I just had a complete brain fart there. Okay. Now, in this set of five, we are going to go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for one entry. So just for one. Okay. So that's a noun. So Aldebaran is a noun, and it's a star of the first magnitude of the Eye of Taurus, so-called because it follows up upon the Pleiades. It is the largest and most brilliant of a cluster of five, which the Greeks called the Hyades. From its position, it is sometimes termed the bullseye. So that's pretty cool. The bullseye. And let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for entry number 12, which is a person. And that is Alda Graver, comma Heinrich. And it's spelled like Alda Griever. So whenever I said it, I said it wrong. So it's Alda Graver. Palma Heinrich or Heinrich Aldegraver, real surname Trippenmaker, or Trippenmaker, <laughs> German painter, engraver, and goldsmith, born Paderborn, Westphalia in 1502, died so uh, around 1560. He was the son of Hermann Aldegraver of Paderborn, and when still a younger a young man, became a citizen of Soest, where he lived and worked for the rest of his life. The last date recorded on one of his engravings is 1555, and in 1561, in answer to a request from a relative in Strasbourg, the city council wrote that he was deceased. He had, as his patron, Duke Wilhelm of Cleve, and like most artists of his day, worked at various branches of his craft, such as sculpture and goldsmithing. Among the paintings attributed to him are the portrait of a young man in 1544, young man with a pink, not dated, the Resurrection, 1529, and the Portrait of Engelbert Thorlane in 1551. 
the last being the only certain example of his work. His greatest importance was as an engraver, and his style shows the marked influence of Albrecht Durer. Okay, so let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. There, got it. <laughs> For entries 13, 14, and 15, which are all aldehyde, or a form of aldehyde. So aldehyde. First one for aldehyde is noun, a pungent, volatile liquid obtained by the removal of a hydrogen from an alcohol. Aldehydic of or pertaining to. Alright, and number 13, aldehyde. Acetaldehyde or acetic aldehyde, CH3CHO, a volatile, highly pungent liquid boiling at 20.8 degrees Celsius prepared by oxidizing alcohol usually with a mixture of potassium, bichromate, and sulfuric acid. It is produced to a limited extent during alcoholic fermentation, and it is the compound intermediate between alcohol and acetic acid, into each of which it may be converted. Aldehyde is mixable in all proportions with water and has strongly reducing powers. It precipitates silver and copper from certain of their compounds and is itself converted into acidic acid. Aldehyde easily forms a additive compounds with subs such substances as ammonia or sodium hydrogen sulfite. These bodies have the formula CH3CH parentheses OH close parentheses NH2 and CH3CH parentheses OH and SO3NA respectively. It also readily polymerizes to metal aldehyde, a solid, and para Aldehyde, a liquid modification. The above properties are shared more or less by all aldehydes, which constitute one of the most reactive classes of compounds in organic chemistry. Many compounds containing an amino group form crystalline derivatives with aldehyde. See aldehydes, which we are getting ready to right now. So number 15, aldehydes. Class of organic compounds intermediate between primary alcohols and acids. Each aldehyde is derived from the corresponding alcohol by which the abstraction of two atoms of hydrogen, and each aldehyde is converted into its corresponding acid by the addition of one atom of oxygen. They are prepared in a similar manner to aldehyde, acetic aldehyde, and are characterized by the presence of carbonyl CO group. On this account, they form crystalline derivatives with a number of substances such as phenylhydrazine and hydrooxalamine. These products are called phenylhydrazones and aldoxymes, respectively. Okay, and with that, let's go to break. Um, well, before we go to break, I just want to mention, uh, I will tell you uh, the story of why I'm going to probably enjoy Christmas way more than Halloween from now on. Uh, so you want to stick around for that. So we'll see you in just a little bit. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your break. Our next five words um, are strictly from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And they're actually names. We have Alden, and we're going to be in the Aldens until entry number 22. So Alden, Edmund Kimball, D.D. Alden, Henry Mills, Lit. D. Alden, Isabella, McDonald. Alden, James. Alden, John. So, 
All right, and number 16 is Alden, Edmund Kimball, D.D., or Edmund Kimball Alden, D.D., and this is C-O-N-G-L, clergyman, so I guess a congregational clergyman, born Randolph, Massachusetts, 1825, April 11th. He graduated at Amherst College in 1844 and at Andover Theology Seminary, 1848. In 1850, he became pastor of the First Church, Yarmouth, Maine. Four years later, he was settled at Lenox, Massachusetts, where he remained five years, and in 1859, became pastor of Phillips, uh, I'm not sure what the C-O-N-G-L is, church, south of Boston, Massachusetts. He was made secretary of the American Board of Commissioners for, uh, for Foreign Missions, Boston, 1876, having charge especially of the home department of that great organization. In this position, his persistent objection to the appointment of missionaries who were not prepared to disclaim sympathy with the quote, Andover hypothesis, end quote, of a probation in the future life for such heathen as had not had Christ presented to them in this life brought upon him severe inversion, adversion from some of the most prominent contributors of the work of the American board, but his action was sustained by a large majority of the board at its annual meeting in 1887 in October at Springfield, Massachusetts, the subsequent meetings showed that the majority did not desire to maintain their views by intolerant measures. Dr. Alden, esteemed for most faithful service, died 1896, April 30th. All right, and before I go to entry number 17, I did promise I would explain why Christmas is becoming one of my favorite holidays. Uh, well, it all started when I realized that I needed a tree. It's my first... Christmas in my new house and my first Christmas with my little puppy so I was like oh, a tree would be great and I like live trees so I don't know about you guys if, if you like live trees uh, let me know if you prefer fake trees that's quite all right um, but I like live trees I didn't have anything nothing D didn't have a tree stand nothing so I looked at a grocery store and their trees were about 30 bucks it's like, ah, I really don't want to spend $30, and they didn't have any tree stands either. So I went uh, to some tree lots. Uh, one person laughed at me when I asked them if they had a tree stand, and they're like, no, no one has tree stands. And, you know, and their cheapest trees in both tree lots were 50 bucks. Uh, see, let me explain something. The reason I didn't know how much trees were is because my roommate and I always split the cost. So when you split the cost of something, you don't really necessarily think about the entire cost you just think about your part of the cost and that's what sticks in your mind so I was thinking more along the lines of 15 to 25 dollars uh, depending on where I went so you know this was a huge eye-opener for me um, going around these tree lots and stuff so I ended up going to one of the hardware stores that I knew would have at least the tree stand. And I was right. They had tons of tree stands. Tons and tons of them. I won't tell you where I went. But uh had tons of tree stands. And so I, gr I grabbed one. And I grabbed some lights. Because no lights at all. All of the uh, Christmas stuff is my roommate's. I only had three things that were mine. Um, 
And all of the Halloween stuff was mine, with the exception of three things were hers. So, so that's a little funny there. Because Christmas was obviously her favorite holiday and Halloween mine. And it showed in our stuff. So, so I had nothing. Um, so I went and searched and searched. I drove, I even drove back to the tree lot. Forgot to get gas because I was searching for a tree. And I just decided I did not want to pay $50. Just $50 for a life tree. I live in the middle of nowhere. I'm surrounded by trees. Beautiful, gorgeous trees. So I decided I was going to go looking for a tree. The good old-fashioned way. So I did. Uh, I went up in the woods. I spent about an hour in the woods. And I found some trees that were eh, okay. Um, just traipsed around. Oh, and I did not have an axe. I searched for an axe. I searched for a hatchet. All I had was a machete that I inherited and a shovel that I found. So that's all I had. So I was either going to dig it or whack my arm off trying um, to cut it down. <laughs> so, so I went traipsing around the woods. Uh, if anyone saw me, they probably thought I was insane, but that's okay. I didn't find the tree that suited me. So I started looking around um, the land and, and uh, I noticed three possibilities. So I went down to the biggest one. And it turns out there were three trees growing together, so it made it look like one giant, amazing Christmas tree. So that was a no-go. Uh, so I went to the other one, and uh, it was—it's a little too small right now. So maybe in about a year or two, it might be—it might be big enough. Uh, maybe five years, who knows? Um, then I looked and I saw it, and his name is Fluffy. And I chopped him down with a machete. I talked to him first and told him he was going to go into a really nice home and, and he's going to be decorated with, with lights and, and put in water and and a uh, beautiful tree. Uh, it's not completely full all the way around. Uh, so you know how trees kind of take up half your living room because it's, they're always full all the way around. Well, I got one that's full in the front and kind of flat in the back. And with which most of the trees that I have around here are like that. Most of the pines, the, the different pines and aspens and stuff are like that. Um, so, but it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. He is snug. He's kind of against the wall, not completely against the wall. But, you know, uh, the part that matters, the fluffy part, where he got his name from, is sticking out everywhere. It's gorgeous. My, my nephew did say he looked weird. But uh, my ex-roommate came over and saw it, and, and uh, she said it would probably cost me $70 if I bought him at a store, which made me feel pretty good. But yeah, his, his name is Fluffy, and this is that's why I'm starting to like Christmas more than Halloween, because, wow, I was able to go and, and chop down my own Christmas tree, and now I've got a whole story about how I came about with Fluffy. So, and he does look a little weird. He doesn't look like the typical full-fledged Christmas tree that you buy in a store. But he looks better than that to me. And uh, he's my favorite tree by far that I've ever had. So I'm really, really excited about Christmas. And I'm glad I got to share that story with you about why I'm excited about Christmas. And why don't you share your story with me? Uh, do you have your tree up yet? 
What kind of tree do you like? Do you have your decorations up yet? And it is December 5th. You know, there's only 20 days left till Christmas. So, so let me know. Uh, write to me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact. And I'd love to hear from you. But that's my story, so let's go ahead and go to our next entry, which is entry number 17. Alden, Henry Mills, Lit D, or Henry Mills, Alden, Lit D, editor, born at Mount Tabor, Vermont, 1836, November 11th, graduated at Williams College in 1857 and at Andover Theology Seminary in 1860. Soon after completing his education, he was invited to deliver a course of lectures before the Lowell Institute in Boston, and accordingly prepared and delivered a series of 12 lectures on the structure of paganism, he being the youngest of all the Lowell Institute lecturers. That's cool. In 1864, he entered the employment of Harper and Brothers, Publishers New York, as managing editor of Harper's Weekly, and in 1868 became editor of Harper's Magazine, which position he still holds in 1906. So he was still alive when the 1909 was written or published. In conjunction with Alfred H. Guernsey, he prepared Harper's Pictorial History of the Rebellion, 1863 to 1865, his books God and His World, 1892, and A Study of Death in 1896 drew wide attention. Very cool. I'd like to read some of those books. Okay, number 18 is Alden, Isabella McDonald. Isabella McDonald Alden, author, born New York, 1841. She married Reverend G.R. Alden in 1866 in May. Her juvenile stories, published under the name Pansy Books and comprising nearly 60 titles, are interesting and popular. They include Helen Lester, a prize story written when she was a young girl, One Commonplace Day, Mrs. Harry Harper's Awakening, Esther Reed, Tip Lewis and His Lamp, The Browning Boys, Links in Rebecca's Life, An Endless Chain, The King's Daughter, Mary Burton Abroad, The Pocket Measure, Spun from Fact, Three People, Ruth Erskine's Crosses, Chautauqua Girls at Home, Four Girls at Chautauqua, New Year's Tangles, Six Little Girls, and Chrissy's Endeavor, 1889. Alden has been connected with the Chautauqua Summer School from its beginning. She is known also as the editor of Pansy, a juvenile publication. Very cool. I've never read any of her books. If you have, let me know. Just write to me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact. Let me know if you've read any of her books. Some, they sound pretty cool. Our 19th entry is Alden, James, or James Alden, 1810, March 31st, died 1877, February 6th, born in Portland, Maine, naval officer. He was appointed a midshipman in the U.S. Navy in 1828, was commissioned lieutenant 1841, lieutenant commander in 1855, captain in 1863, commodore 1866, and rear admiral and commander of the European Squadron, and was retired in 1873. During his naval career, he took part in the Wilkes Exploring Expedition Around the World, the capture of Veracruz, Tuxpan, and Tabasco in the Mexican War, the Indian War on Puget Sound, and the Civil War distinguished himself in the last as commander of the Richmond at the passage of Forts Jackson and St. Philip and capture of New Orleans, 
and of the Brooklyn in the capture of Mobile Bay and the two attacks on Fort Fisher. Wow, that's pretty cool. And number 20 is Alden, John, or John Alden, lived from 1599 to 1687 in uh, September 12th, born England, Plymouth colonist. How cool. Oh, here we go. Here's a colonist. He was working at the Cooper's Trade in Southampton when the while the pilgrim ship Mayflower was being prepared there for her voyage to America. Okay, so if you remember the Thanksgiving a bonus, we talked about the pilgrims. So here's actually someone who was a pilgrim. This is pretty cool. And uh, signing the famous compact in 1620 became the youngest member of the party. That is really cool. In 1621, he married Priscilla Mullins and about 1635 was chosen magistrate of Plymouth Colony, an office which he held till his death. Longfellow made him one of the principal characters in his poem, Miles Standish's Courtship. Alright, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next five entries are Alden, Timothy, and Alden, William Livingston, and then Alder, Alder Fly, and Alderman. So those are our next five entries, and our 24th entry will be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. But let's start with the 21st entry, which is Alden, Timothy. He was an inventor. Born Barnstable, Massachusetts in 1819, died 1858 in December, and there are no actual days uh, listed. He was one of many thousands of printers who have dreamed of inventing typesetting machines and of hundreds who have attempted it. He labored on one from 1846 until death. A horizontal rotating wheel with type cells on its circumference, making re receivers rotate with it to pick out the type at the proper places. His brother, Henry W., improved the machine after his death. And uh, before we continue to uh, number 22, I just wanted to say that during break, my nephew informed me that he enjoyed chess, playing chess, more than playing Roblox. Um, yeah, <laughs> if you're in shock, I am too, because... That is fantastic. Um, and let me tell you, if you don't know what Roblox is, you're lucky. Uh, count yourself very, very lucky. Um, the kids love, love, love Roblox. And uh, every time I'm with them, they ask if they can play it. But I just thought that was really cool. So during break, uh, I'll admit it, we played chess. And it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> so, so yeah, if you... Uh, if you like chess, let me know if you enjoy it or if you've never learned how to play but want to play. Just uh, give me a holler. Go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact uh, or go or email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com. And uh, I think I mentioned it before. Um, I enjoy playing it. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination at all. Um, but it is fun to teach uh you know, someone a lot younger than me how to play the basics and, and stuff. I, I couldn't tell you what anything, any of the moves are called. Um, but I do know how the pieces move, at least. And I had a castle. So, <laughs> I do know that one, castling. But anyway, it's it's been a lot of fun. And I just wanted to share that because it was a lot of fun. 
right, and let's move on to entry number 22. Alden, William Livingston. And, oh, and before I continue, I do need to, need to mention this. My niece also played chess with me, and she has a lot of fun with it, too. So, just uh, felt like I would be remiss if I didn't mention her, her playing with me. But Alright, so, entry number 22. Alden, William Livingston, or William Livingston Alden. Author, known for his satirical and humorous contributions to the editorial page of the New York Times during several years. Born... Williamstown, Massachusetts, in 1837 on October 9th. He received his education at Lafayette and Jefferson Colleges, graduated 1858, and studied law. He became a popular contributor to the magazines and introduced canoeing as a recreation into the United States, founding in 1870 the New York Canoe Club. That's pretty cool. He published books. His published books include Domestic Explosives in 1878, Shooting Stars, 1879, Canoe and Flying Proa, 1880, The Moral Pirates, 1881, Life of Christopher Columbus, 1882, The Cruise of the Ghost, 1882, The Cruise of the Canoe Club, 1883, Adventures of Jimmy Brown, 1885, Loss of the Swansea, 1889, Trying to Find Europe, 1890, A Lost Soul, 1892, Told by the Colonel, 1893, Among the Freaks, 1896, The Mystery of Elias G. Roebuck, 1896, His Daughter, 1897, Van Wagner's Ways, 1898, Drewitt's Dream, 1902, etc. From 1885 to 1889, he was U.S. Consul General at Rome. From 1890 to 1893, was leader writer on the Paris Herald and since 1900, so he was still alive has been correspondent of the New York Times. Wow, he was busy. <laughs> Very busy. Okay, number 23, Alder. Genesa plants of the natural order Betelacae, regarded by many as a suborder of Menticoa. Oops. See Birch and Menticoa. The genus consists entirely of trees and shrubs, Natives of cold and temperate climates, the flowers and terminal imbricated catkins, which appear before the leaves, the male and female flowers and separate catkins on the same plant, the male or barren catkins loose, centrical, pendulous, having the scales three-lobed and each with three flowers, whose parent is single and four-partite, the fertile catkins oval, compact, having the scales sub-trifled, and each with two flowers destitute of parent, Styles 2, fruit a compressed nut without wings, the common or black A, is a native of Britain and of the native parts of America and Asia, or north, north parts of America and Asia. It has roundish wedge-shaped obtuse leaves, lobed at the margin and serrated. The bark, except in very young trees, is nearly black. It thrives best in moist soils and helps to secure swampy riverbanks against the effects of flood. It attains a height of 30 to 60 feet. Its leaves are somewhat glutinous. The wood is of an orange-yellow color, not very good for fuel, but affording one of the best kinds of charcoal for the manufacture of gunpowder, upon which account it is often grown as coppice wood. That's pretty neat. Great numbers of small alder trees are used in Scotland for making staves of herring barrels. The wood is also employed by turners and joiners, but it is particularly valuable 
on account of its property of remaining for a long time underwater without decay, and is therefore used for piles of bridges, for pumps, sluices, pipes, cogs of mill wheels, and similar purposes. The bark is used for tanning and for dyeing, also for staining fishermen's nets. It produces a yellow or red color, or with copperus, a black color. The leaves and female catkins are employed in the same way by the tanners and dyers of some countries. The bark is bitter and astringent and has been used for gar gargles and also administered with success in ague. The seeds are a favorite food of green finches. The alder is one of the ornaments of many of the most exquisite landscapes in Britain. The dark green of its foliage and the still darker hue of its bark con contrast beautifully with the colors of the other trees, which is it is usually associated on the banks of rivers. In boggy grounds, it is often almost the only kind of tree that appears, and in many parts of the highlands, groups of alders are scattered over the lower and moister parts of the mountain slopes. The individual tree, viewed by itself, may be, regard, may be regarded as somewhat stiff and formal in appearance, but in groups or clusters, it is always far otherwise. The common alder ceases on the Swedish shore of the Gulf of Bothnia in the South Anger mainland and is there called the sea alder because it grows on low grounds near the sea. Oh, here we go. In the United States, the speckled of hoary alder, called sometimes gray or white alder, is the common species northward along streams. It is native also of Europe. It grows 8 to 20 feet high, has the oval leaves rounded at base, and except in the various glucca, downy fruit or orbicular, the smooth alder, the common species from south New England, south and west grows 6 to 12 feet, and obovate leaves acute at base. The green of mountain alder has flowers developed with the leaves and the fruit winged. From the north it extends south on the Agahanis. The seaside alder, flowers in autumn, has large catkins, grows to 20 feet, is found in Delaware and Maryland, and thought to be the same as a species in Japan. That's cool. A card cardifolia is a large tree native of South Italy. Several species are natives of the Himalayas. The berry-bearing alder or alder buckthorn is a totally different plant. See buckthorn. All right. And our 24th entry, um, as I mentioned before, is in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And that is alderfly. A... Neuropetorid insect belonging to the family Psyllidae. The aquatic larvae are predators. <laughs> the adults are used as fish bait. Um, I chose that one because of the last part of the fish bait. I thought, you know, if any fishermen are listening, that's for you, the alderfly. And if you've ever used alderfly, have you caught anything? Um, let me know. Um, if you ever wanted to try to use it, yeah, let me know. I'm not particularly fond of fishing that much, but, um, I shouldn't say fond of. I don't get to do it very often. Um, and when I do get to fish, it's very peaceful. Um, I just like to throw the line in and just kind of soak in nature, but I also like to hike to do that. So, <laughs> so I don't fish very often. Um, probably once every handful of years but if you like to fish I think that's great 
um, let me know. Go to uh, theoaktreejourneys.com, select contact, and, and let me know if you've ever used an alder fly or email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com. Okay, and our 25th entry before break is alderman, noun, a senior or superior, a civic dignitary next in rank to the mayor, aldermanic, in the manner of an alderman, aldermanly, note, originally a dignity of the highest rank, very nearly that of a king. That's cool. I never knew that. Uh, so, alderman. And we are going to go to break, and when we come back from break, we are going to see a second Definition of Alderman. And welcome back. Our last five entries are Alderman, Alderman, Edward Sinclair, Alderman, Edwin Anderson, Alderman Lizard, and Alderney. And for our second uh, entry for Alderman, we're our 26th entry overall for this week. Uh, is a title given to a grade of civic officers in municipalities in the United States and in England, Wales, and Ireland. The corresponding title in Scotland is Bailey. Their functions differ in different cities, and some involving considerable magistral power, especially in affairs of internal police. Some cities, e.g. Philadelphia, have dispensed with this title for their officials. In New York, an alderman is a member of the Common Council elected by the people. The London Court of Aldermen consists of 26 aldermen, including the Lord Mayor, and constitutes the bench of magistrates for the city, besides having judicial and legislative authority in the corporation. Whether any definite and invariable functions were connected with the ancient rank of elderman is not clearly ascertained. The term was generally applied to persons of high and hereditary distinction, such as princes, earls, and governors. Its special signification in the titles Alderman of All England, Aldermanus Tiltius Anglia, and King's Alderman, Aldermanus Regis, is not distinctly indicated. There were also aldermen of counties, hundreds, cities, boroughs, and castles. Wow! <laughs> So, just kind of an all-encompassing title, I guess. Maybe it stopped meaning anything. I don't know. But that's pretty cool. I do like that. All right, our 27th entry is Alderman, Edward Sinclair, or Edward Sinclair Alderman. He was an American clerg clergyman and educator, born in Williamton, North Carolina, 1861, July 27th. He was graduated from Wake Forest College in North Carolina in 1883 and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1886. He has held Baptist pastorates in Kentucky and has been president of Bethel College in Kentucky from 1898. So he was still alive uh, when this was published in 1909. So that's pretty cool. All right, entry number 28, Alderman, Edwin Anderson, or Edwin Anderson Alderman. He was an American educator. Born Williamton, North Carolina in 1861, May 15th. See, uh, if anyone was thinking what I was thinking, like, ooh, maybe they got these entries mixed up. There we go. May 15th is, is the difference. He was educated at the University of North Carolina, was superintendent of the public schools of Goldsboro, North Carolina from 1884 to 1887, 
Assistant State Superintendent of North Carolina, 1889 to 1892, Professor of English and History at the State Normal College. I just love that. If you notice, we've got a lot of normal colleges or normal schools. So um, I'm not sure what that was, but we'll make a little note here to look that up sometime. And if we ever decide to do a bonus on it, I'll have that information or... Uh, maybe I will do a bonus on it later. So, yeah. Let me just, I'm making a quick note here. Alright, there we go. Because I don't know what they're talking about when they say that. Okay. Alright, so he was a professor of the Philoso philosophy of education at the University of North Carolina from 1893 to 1896. President of the latter institution, 1896 to 1900. President of Tulane University, 1900 to 1904, and since 1904, June 14th, President of the University of Virginia. He has been active in educational work in the southern states with the design of securing better schools and the increase of revenue from taxes for this purpose. He has written Life of William Hooper, Signer, or Signer of the Declaration, School History of North Carolina, etc. And uh, another interesting man who was still alive at the time of, of this uh, publication. Okay, our 29th entry is Alderman Lizard. And for that entry, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for the last time this week. So Alderman Lizard, a literary name for the Chuckawalla, any of seven species of herbivorous lizards allied to Sormalus abesis. They inhabit the southwestern desert regions in the United States and the deserts adjacent to the Gulf of California. So I've never heard of them, but I saw that name and I was like, ooh, what is that? That's pretty cool. All right, and our last entry, our 30th entry for today and for this week is Alderney. So Alderney, island in the English Channel, see Channel Islands. Latitude 49 degrees 45 feet north, longitude 2 degrees 13 feet west, separated from the coast of Normandy by a strait about 7 miles in breadth called the Race of Alderney. Through this channel, which is very dangerous in rough weather, the remnant of the French fleet escaped after their defeat at La Hogue in 1692. The distances between Alderney and the nearest points of Guernsey, Jersey, and Great Britain are respectively about 15, 33, and 60 miles. The length of the island is about 4 miles, the breadth about 1 and 1 quarter. The coast to the southeast is bold and lofty. To the northeast and north, it descends, forming numerous small bays, one of which, that of Crabby, affords the only anchorage in the island. A harbor of refuge and breakwater have been constructed on the north side of the island. Six miles to the west are the Caskets, a small cluster of rocks on which are three lighthouses. The soil in the center of the island is highly productive. And the Alderney cows, a small but handsome breed, have always been celebrated. The climate is mild and healthy and good water abounds. Hmm. I may want to visit if it's still around. The climate is, okay, I already read that. The population in 1851 was 3,333. That's a good number. In 1871, oh, it dropped. 2,738. 
and it dropped again in 1891 to 1,857 and increased a little bit in 1901 to 2,062. Interesting. Education, to some extent, is universal. The population was originally French, but half the inhabitants now speak English and all understand it. Protestantism has prevailed here since the Reformation. Alderney is a dependency of Guernsey and subject to the British crown. The civil power is vested in a judge appointed by the crown and six jurates chosen by the people. These with 12 popular representatives or thousandiers who do not vote constitute the local legislator. The court of justice is composed of the judge and jurates, the royal procurer and comptroller, and the registrar or graffier, nominated by the governor. There is a local militia consisting of two companies of infantry and a brigade of artillery. The town, in a picturesque valley near the center of the island, contains a few public buildings, among which is the old church said to have been erected in the 12th century, and a new one in the early English style with a tower 104 feet high. The living is a perpetual currency in the archdeaconry and diocese of Winchester. Okay. And there we go. Thank you so much for uh, sticking with us, for uh, joining us for Season 1, Episode 42. Um, and I hope this isn't uh, too long. I won't know how long this is until I put everything together, but um, hopefully this did help. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful December. Uh, this is December 5th, so have a wonderful Sunday and a wonderful rest of the week. Uh, before you go, though... I just want to remind you of our quote of the month by Carlisle. Wondrous is the strength of cheerfulness and its power of endurance. The cheerful man will do more in the same time, will do it better, will persevere in it longer than the sad or the sullen. Okay, and don't forget, uh, we will have a Christmas bonus. And the goal is to uh, is that it will be uploaded by Christmas Eve. So look for that Christmas Eve. And I'll uh, keep reminding uh, as we go along through the weeks. But until then, I hope you have a blessed week and I bid you adieu.